The UK has ordered 100 million doses of this Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. A third vaccine has now been authorised by the UK medicines regulator. It's the Moderna vaccine. The UK has placed an initial order for 50 million doses of new vaccines to be delivered later this year. And that puts us towards the front of the international pack on a per capita basis. By the middle of January, 49 wealthy countries had administered 39 million doses of the COVID vaccine. But the world's poorest countries had only done 25 jabs, all of them in just one country, Guinea. Not 25 million, not 25,000, just 25. The world is on the brink of a catastrophic moral failure. And the price of this failure will be paid with lives and livelihoods in the world's poorest countries. Even as they speak the language of equitable access, some countries and companies continue to prioritize bilateral deals, driving up prices and attempting to jump to the front of the queue. So why can't some countries get hold of the vaccine? Why are rich countries buying more doses than they need? And are we seeing the rise of vaccine nationalism? If we cannot cooperate on equitably distributing a vaccine in the midst of a deadly pandemic, when it is in all of our interests to cooperate, what global challenge will we be able to cooperate on? It's not right on moral grounds. It's not right on public health grounds because everybody's saying nobody's safe until everybody's safe. Yeah, okay. How do you make everybody safe? There's been too much of putting uh, the profits of big pharmaceutical companies ahead of the public public health of billions of people on Earth. In this episode of the Weekly Economics Podcast, we're asking, who's hoarding all the vaccines? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, recording this podcast from my house. Stay with us. So this week, I'm really excited to be joined down the line by Miriam Brett, Director of Research and Advocacy at Commonwealth and returning friend of the pod. Hi, Miriam. Hello. Thank you for having me back. Thank you for being with us, as always. And I'm also very excited to be joined by a new friend of the pod, Tahir Amin, co-executive director of Initiative for Medicines, Access and Knowledge. Is that right? Did I butcher that, yeah. Tahir? No, no, you did it perfectly, Asha. Thank you. Oh, brilliant. Okay. So let's get started. We need to get to grips with who owns the vaccines, I think, before we even dive into this conversation, because that's definitely something that confuses me. So the UK has approved three vaccines, Pfizer-BioNTech, Oxford, AstraZeneca and Moderna. Um, Miriam, could you start off by explaining to us who has the right to make these vaccines and how is that decided? Yeah, certainly. So in terms of the ownership, each vaccine is different depending on the pharmaceutical company involved and at times um, depending on various research bodies too. So at UK level, for example, the AstraZeneca vaccine was created through a partnership with Oxford. Um, so I want to start by saying that despite the fact that vaccines are overwhelmingly owned by pharmaceutical companies, that's not always reflective of how they're funded. And actually, vaccines are often in part funded by the taxpayer, as was the case here following the May announcement from the UK government that researchers would be funded by £84 million of new government funding to help develop the vaccine. But in spite of that public funding, the rights to the knowledge around the creation of specific vaccines is often owned exclusively by a pharmaceutical company. So that's the pathway to ownership of vaccines is really guided by intellectual property. 
Thanks, Miriam. So Tahir, it'd be great if you could explain a few terms for us off the back of that fantastic overview from Miriam. So firstly, could you tell us what intellectual property rights are uh, and how they work? Right. Intellectual property is a a broadest term that captures things like uh, patents, trademarks, copyright, designs, trade secrets, or often known as know-how or what the media is calling the recipe for the vaccines. And this is all falls under the idea of intellectual property. And you have national laws. Most countries have national laws that protect intellectual property. And you have also multilateral treaties like the World Trade Organization Treaty, which is called TRIPS, Trade-Related Aspects of Intellectual Property. You also have bilateral free trade agreements between countries, particularly the US and Europe, have a lot of these agreements individually with countries as well in order to cement protection for their companies. And what about patents then? Patents? Patents? I don't know how you say that. What are they? (laughs) First of all, how do you say it and how do they fit into this whole picture? Well, in in the UK, we would say patents. In the US, you would say patents. I live in both, so I got mixed up myself. Basically, (laughs) uh, patents or patents, they are essentially uh, what, for example, when we talk about treatment, some of these treatments that we've seen, such as remdesivir, which was the initial treatment used for COVID by Gilead Sciences, what typically a company will do, they'll have a compound, like a chemical compound, and that then gets patented. Usually there's several types of compounds in that initial patent, which you file at a patent office, and that gives you then 20 years of protection. But what companies traditionally do is they will build out different incremental forms of that original patent in order to get extra extended protection and add on another 8, 10, 12 years, typically. And that's the case with the vaccines as well. So, for example, as Miriam rightly pointed, even though uh, there's been a lot of public funding in the vaccine. The intellectual property and the patents now often rest with the private actors, such as the Modernas, the Pfizer, BioNTech, and the governments who funded this research don't actually hold that intellectual property, that those patents. And so, really, then these companies can decide how they want to enforce them, use them, and essentially uh, dictate the terms. Uh, okay, I'm starting to see why this might be a problem then. Um, and just a final quick question then, Tahir, on the technical stuff. Who pays for the vaccines to get developed? Did companies self-fund that or are there investors? Well, I think if you look at, for example, the Moderna vaccine, and, and again, there's not a lot of transparency, but what we do know is for Operation Warp Speed, which is the body that was set up to try and accelerate vaccine development, uh, totally funded the Moderna vaccine, for example. Even the German government funded a lot of BioNTech's work in the mRNA vaccine that they have uh, now partnered with Pfizer. Similarly, the Oxford vaccine was funded by the British government. Now, the development and clinical trial stage was probably paid for by, you know, the Pfizer's and the uh, AstraZeneca's that partnered with Oxford and, and also then the distribution. So what you have is you have this thing where the initial research and development often came from the public funding because typically in pandemic situations, as we've seen historically, the private sector does not actually invest up front. It actually usually is the government and the, the public sector that uh, does the initial funding. And then the private sector comes in and then takes it sort of further and distributes it and makes it commercialized. And I think this is an example we're seeing here, but the benefits are now all going to the private actors and they determine how it gets distributed. Okay, that was really useful. Thanks both for those foundational pieces. So let's go a bit deeper. I think I can understand now why it is that only certain places are allowed to produce and distribute COVID vaccines. But let's talk about what effect this is having. As I said, the UK has administered over 12 million doses of COVID vaccine, but we know that in the world's poorest countries, numbers are shockingly low. Um, Miriam, could you explain a little bit, building on the foundation that you've both offered there, why that is? Yeah, certainly. So 
there was a real opportunity at the start of the development of the various vaccines to create something called a global patent pool. That would effectively mean that pharmaceutical companies would give up their exclusive rights to vaccine patents so that poorer countries could afford to buy or create versions of the vaccine. Now, there was a battle fought for that. Um, So last year at the World Health Organization, there was an initiative that aim to share IP data that would help fight the pandemic. Um, It was called the COVID-19 Technology Access Pool. And that covered everything from conditions attached to public funding of pharmaceutical companies and the promotion of open innovation and technological transfers as well. Now, that gained quite a significant level of support from countries like um, Mozambique, Zimbabwe, Argentina, Ecuador. But absent from that list of supporters was countries like the UK and the US, alongside pharmaceutical giants who condemned the kind of move towards a global patent pool. And again, we saw last year at the World Trade Organization, wealthy nations reiterating their opposition to a waiver of IP rules for COVID-19 drugs. So we've seen demands for change of this system and we've seen a great deal of pushback against that. So the predicament that we've been left in now is one in which the information sharing capacity has not been allowed. There has been an increase in discussion around vaccine nationalism and I just want to touch upon that slightly because One of the ways in which this is often portrayed is that it's simply between countries. Um, Now, while that's undoubtedly important, as we saw with the votes at the World Health Organization and has helped lay the foundation for the current situation we're in, which is a dire one, as you've laid out, Aisha, but IP plays a significant role in this as well. Now, we have seen developments around access to the vaccine. So one of the most significant developments is something called COVAX, Yeah, I'd heard about this. I was going to ask about it. Yeah, so the goal of COVAX is to secure access to 2 billion doses of vaccines that are suitable for all participant contexts by the end of this year. And effectively, this was sold as a way to try and combat vaccine nationalism. But that in and of itself isn't enough. It doesn't actually tap into the need to reform IP. And what we're now seeing is some states and some companies prioritise it bilateral deals, effectively dodging COVAX. Um, and what we're seeing is prices going up and countries, particularly wealthy countries, attempting to effectively jump the queue. And what we're also seeing at the same time as that is that manufacturers have prioritised regulatory approval in wealthy states where profits are, of course, highest, rather than going through the World Health Organization, for example. So we're already seeing delays to that process. And it's really profound just now at a UK level. And I don't want to underplay the significance of the development of the vaccine and the need to vaccinate all. But at a time in the UK where we're celebrating the vaccine being administered, and rightly so, but at the same time, our country has, you know, denied that same right to other countries by blocking a global patent pool. So what we're seeing just now is the UK celebrating the administration of the vaccine and the rollout at the same time as just last month, the Director General of the World Health Organization warned that the world is on the brink of a catastrophic moral failure 
and the price of this failure will be paid with the lives and livelihoods of the world's poorest countries. So we're seeing a real imbalance of power, which is in part around the power of wealthy states and the way that they wield that power, but it's also around the power of pharmaceutical companies and the failure to actually back a global patent pool, which would have meant a safe and equitable and rapid rollout of a vaccine for all. Mm, So that is essentially a really brilliant explanation of what you've previously called the patent enclosure. Is that right? Definitely. Yeah. So so it really taps into who gets to own the knowledge surrounding vaccines. And that is governed by IP. And I should say as well that this isn't a new fight. There has been significant pushback that goes back a really long time over fights around IP and access to medicines. So one example Mm. of this was a Swiss-based pharmaceutical company that threatened to sue Colombia in an international investment tribunal under the terms of a bilateral trade deal for their attempts to access an affordable medicine using TRIPS flexibilities. And TRIPS flexibilities are something that's meant to help make medicines uh, more affordable, for example, through a kind of more flexible approach to trade and IP. And we've seen fights fought in the UK around this. The campaign organisation, brilliant campaign organisation, Just Treatment, have done incredible work to lobby for IP reform for the NHS to gain access at a fairer price for vital medicines and at the same time fighting corporate power and greed. And I think what COVID has done is merely shone a spotlight on fault lines in our current approach to IP. But as I said, this is a fight that's been going on for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit more about that pushback in my next question. But for now, just to get a bit more colour on this. So Tahir, where globally is the vaccine actually allowed to be manufactured? If we could just get some kind of specificity. And if countries can't manufacture it, other than the ways that have been touched upon so far, how can they actually get a hold of it? And is it a question of cost? Is it the fact that these IP rights that we've talked about have driven the cost up to mean that countries can't afford to buy it? Or are there other power dynamics at play there? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I think uh, there are a couple of things. First of all, to your first point, currently, if we're looking at the three vaccines that we're discussing, there are other vaccines also that have been approved, but maybe not approved in the UK. But if we look at the Pfizer, BioNTech, uh, Moderna, and AstraZeneca, Oxford, the AstraZeneca Oxford one is in partnership with Serum Institute, which is one of the biggest global providers of vaccines. So there's that partnership that's going on, and Serum is actually producing a bulk of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, largely for low and middle income countries. And then you have Moderna, who has actually contracted with a plant, I think in Switzerland, it's actually uh, called Lonza, who are doing a lot of the production. I think Sanofi and Novartis have said that they will step up and try and produce or sort of do the end packaging of these vaccines, both for Pfizer and Moderna. And then you've got the Pfizer and BioNTech, and they're just doing that between either the other northern pharmaceutical giants or themselves. So what we're seeing, I mean, neither Pfizer, BioNTech, Moderna, only AstraZeneca has actually uh, partnered with a developing country manufacturer that serum but largely it's all based in the north so all production is based in the north and what we know and through my own research in the past looking at vaccine production in the developing countries we know that there is a developing country vaccine manufacturing network which has over 40 or 41 if you include serum companies spread across the global south that produces up to like 3.5 billion doses of vaccine for various diseases and many of them are actually World Health Organization pre-qualified. And none of that actual capacity is being tapped. 
we look at the World Trade Organization discussions that are going on, the arguments are, well, there isn't production capacity and IP has nothing to do with this. It's a production problem. We don't have the manufacturing plants to be able to do this. It takes a specific type of setup, particularly for the new uh, messenger RNA vaccines. But we don't think that's entirely true because uh, particularly the more traditional types of vaccines, that capability might be there. And even if it's not there right now, if we started to uh, share that knowledge and actually build the infrastructure for these vaccines, it maybe will take six or 12 months, but it'll still beat the projections that we're seeing for many of these low-income countries that may have to wait till 2025 to inoculate most of their population and with all the mutations going on. And this is an almost an endemic situation now where there's going to be a yearly need for these vaccines. So why aren't these uh, wealthy governments that are blocking either the World Trade Organization waiver or pharmaceutical companies that are actually not putting into the uh, World Health Organization pool, what it's doing is just delaying any kind of scale up, largely because there's so much profit that is to be made from this. I mean, if you think about the messenger RNA vaccine, this is not just for COVID vaccines. This is a pipeline that BioNTech and Moderna see a huge amount of money coming in in the future. And I think that's part of the reason why they don't want to actually give it up. And yet there's no pressure, despite all the public funding that's gone into this, to actually get them to actually start sharing their technology. Whether we suspend the IP rules through the WTO or the Western governments that have funded some of this, get these companies to start sharing technology in order to scale up. So I think uh, all the capacity is actually with the global north at the moment. And I think in my sense that we talk about vaccine nationalism, actually this is economic nationalism. This is actually the wealthy basically protecting its own interests. And that's why they don't want to disturb the World Trade Organization ecosystem that they built themselves 40 years ago, well, 30 years ago, 1995, but it started in 1970 in order to actually protect their economic interests. And I think if we look deeper, the inequity of the World Trade Organization and the entire intellectual property system is coming right in front of us now because of this global crisis that we're facing. Wow. I mean, you know, I had no idea about any of these patent issues or intellectual property issues. It seemed bad enough when it just seemed like certain countries were hoarding it. But with all this kind of extra color, it's truly shocking. I was wondering, Tahir, if you could just explain a bit about the current dispute between the UK and the US over the AstraZeneca vaccine and what that has to do with IP? Oh, you mean the UK, the EU? Yeah, sorry. Yes, right. Well, that really is about supply again. It's about basically uh, the EU. There are plants in Europe where AstraZeneca, I think it's a Belgian plant, they can't produce enough. And the EU is saying, well, we're going to ban exports from the EU because of now Brexit. And I think all this is really, I've referred to it as that the EU can't see past the end of its own nose. Uh, there's a bigger problem here. The EU is one of the main proponents of blocking any sharing of knowledge, whether it's with the World Trade Organization or trying to assert pressure on some of the companies that they funded the initial research on, such as the BioNTech. And instead of actually showing leadership, the EU is, is actually having a fight with the UK and the UK and having this little mini spat. And the world is on fire because there's not enough vaccine to go around. And I think this is largely because they want to protect this system that in the long term is going to keep them economically powerful. But as a result, we're going to see an absolute crisis globally. And also, as projected by one report, this is going to be a 9.2 trillion loss for the economy globally, and 4.2 of it is going to be in developed countries. So they can't get past their own mentality here to see that this is a bigger crisis that we've never experienced before, at least in 100 years. And keeping an IP system that is actually harming us more is in the long run going to be more sort of deleterious to the globe, and particularly the poorer countries who are going to economically be 
so much more disadvantage in the future as they try to rebuild. So it's more than vaccine nationalism, it's economic nationalism. Yeah, and as you say, and as Miriam, you say as well, it kind of goes way beyond this moment, right? This is something that has been, the foundations of which have been constructed over decades. So we've talked there about the COVID technology access pool a little bit. We talked about COVAX a little bit. But Miriam, I was wondering if you could just explain, I guess, a bit of an overview about the various different efforts that are being taken at the moment to address some of these concerns. I guess, do you have faith that any of them are going to work and are they going far enough? So, I mean, I think some of the key developments have been the efforts at the World Health Organization, the efforts at the World Trade Organization, and more recently with COVAX as well. Ultimately, though the best efforts around a waiver for the intellectual property rights around this, around the global access pool for this, those would have been the most transformative efforts that we could have backed and championed here, because what that would allow countries to do, particularly middle and low income countries, is to purchase and produce vaccines to ensure that everybody has access to that. What we've wound up with is COVAX, and COVAX is already being undermined by bilaterals, by pharmaceutical companies, by wealthy nations. And what we're seeing now is vaccine hoarding. What we're seeing now is people jump in the queue. What we're seeing now is prices potentially being driven up. And for me, that's because we failed to deal with the question of IP. We failed to tap into that. We failed to address what was a significant contributing factor to the failure to adequately distribute medicines. And because this is an ongoing issue, because this issue has been fought time and time again, we saw with the Swiss and Columbia example, we knew that this was coming down the line. And although the situation is, of course, unprecedented with COVID-19, the uneven distribution of an access to medicine at a global level is not new and we could have seen this coming. They must have seen this coming. And for me, that was a real failure to protect people, many of whom are in low and middle income countries, are simply not going to see this vaccine for a very long time now. So do I have faith in the current efforts to try and secure an equitable and rapid rollout? Well, no, because what we're currently seeing is the output of that. And we see Oxfam warning recently that nine out of 10 people in poor countries are set to miss out on the vaccine next year. And what they've called for is that all pharmaceutical corporations um, working on COVID-19 vaccines should openly share their technology and their intellectual property through the World Health Organization's COVID-19 technology access pool. I think at the heart of this as well, this is a global pandemic. Like We need a global response. There's no use in individual countries tackling this on their own because that's not the reality of this pandemic. So I think there remains a need to share intellectual property that would safeguard genuinely fair, equitable and rapid global access for all to vaccines and be able to tackle this pandemic um, collectively. Okay, that makes sense. I mean, I I was really hoping you'd be like, yeah, I got faith. We've got this. But um, (laughs) I can't say I'm surprised. Um, The next question, I want to stay with intellectual property for just a little bit more and talk about some of the the arguments in favour of the current system. So, Tahir, to begin with, could you address the argument that the UK government has made that our current IP system doesn't, in fact, prevent access to vaccines? And maybe tell us a little bit about the rules that allow compulsory licences to produce patented vaccines in a public health emergency. 
Yeah, it's the classic response to any attempt to waive IP or remove it as an obstacle. Uh, it's that basically it's not IP. It, for example, what I said earlier, there's no production capability other than the ones that are producing, which is uh, not entirely true. But to use things like compulsory licensing, and while very useful in a situation with vaccines, it's not just about patents. And that's why I use the broader term intellectual property, because you have as I mentioned earlier, this know-how, you know, the recipe, and often that is secret. These aren't actually disclosed in patents that are filed, that are made public eventually. You need to share that technology alongside, you know, what's available in the patent. And so that's why, you know, as Miriam has mentioned, with the uh, sharing that through the pool or actually suspending intellectual property rules for the duration of the pandemic, which can also help in other aspects such as PPE equipment and whatever, which is also protected by various forms of IP, that can help other countries in those ways. What we need is the governments of the companies that are actually making these vaccines. We need them to lean on them to say, you've got to transfer this technology in order to alleviate the supply problem. And I think um, the idea that IP doesn't present a problem is really uh, is to deflect the issue because we know it's a problem. We're not saying it's the only problem. But we're saying it is a problem and this common sort of threat that gets made by the pharmaceutical companies that, oh, well, if we don't have IP, we won't invest. Well, that's what the governments are saying, too, which is also makes me think that, well, what kind of system do we have that is basically where companies can make these threats? Saying, well, we're not going to do something despite all the public funding that's gone into it and then keep extracting more and more out of the system. That, to me, sounds like we have a very bad system. Uh, it might deliver some vaccines, but actually it's not going to get to everyone. So then why wouldn't we want to fix that? And I think we're just stuck in this uh, mentality, which is this is how it's worked for so many years. And we're going to keep going with it. And, you know, we have a once in a century crisis. Mm, um, OK, so let's look into the future a little bit. I, Yeah, we have to move on from IP. I have a few burning questions, but I'm going to hold it. So let's look into the future. I wanted to talk with you, Miriam, a little bit about the effects that this kind of vaccine nationalism or economic nationalism might have on the pandemic itself. So do you think it's going to slow down the vaccine rollout? And then also one of the things that I'd heard in particular was some people are kind of saying that what we're going to see is a kind of boomerang effect because from a selfish perspective, if we're not sharing the vaccine with countries in the global south and then the virus spreads and mutates, won't those mutations just return back to impact countries where people have had the vaccine? So on your first question around whether this will slow our ability to combat the crisis, inevitably the answer is yes, we're already seeing that playing out. You know, when we're warned that nine out of 10 people in poor countries are set to miss out on the vaccines in 2021, we know that that's the case and we know that that will slow down progress. So on the question of the mutations, I think it's a really good point because it reiterates that this is an international struggle just now and the ability for any one country to overcome this alone that's not possible that's why we need to ensure that absolutely everybody has access to this and under the current system what we're seeing is really prolonged delays in that process particularly for low-income countries and exactly as you highlighted the predicament whereby some countries are vaccinated, others are not, for the virus to mutate. That's one of the many, many threats of not having equitable access to the vaccines. So yes, it will slow down 
progress is already slowing it down. And yes, it does pose threats further down the line. And I think that's why we need intervention just now, either through waivers of IP at the WTO or through the global patent pool at the World Health Organization. But really what this is going to take is wealthy countries, particularly those that are producing the vaccine like the UK, to actually put pressure as well on pharmaceutical companies to actually engage in dialogue on this because we've seen a significant amount of resistance from pharmaceutical companies. And I think one of the conversations that we need to have following this crisis is around the power that pharmaceutical giants actually hold and the ability that they have to shape health outcomes, which at the end of the day, you know, it's in absolutely everybody's interests that we all have healthy societies. Mm, So I want to wrap up actually by talking a little bit more about what needs to change. But before we do that, I've got two things in my head that I've heard about this that if I don't ask both of you will annoy me. So one of them, the first one for you Tahir, is a couple of organisations that I work with or have worked with are looking into the idea of a kind of I will wait campaign of basically encouraging people in global north countries who may be young or healthy or you know whatever to volunteer to not have their vaccine and so that it could go to someone in the global south instead and I know that since that's kind of come out in the news there's been quite a strong backlash from um, some people in the media and elsewhere about the very idea of such a thing so yeah just want to get your thoughts on that do you think that's something that could be useful? I think it's very noble, but I don't think it's going to help anyone in the long run. And Mm -hmm. I think just speaking about what Miriam has said, this pandemic is the beginning of probably what's going to happen more and more. I mean, in the last 20 years, we've had a few that never quite got to this scale. And uh, with climate change and what have you, we need to be scaling up production across the globe. I think that's the only solution. And, you know, donations or Canada supposedly bought vaccines for inoculated entire population six times over, and then they're going to donate it. I think it's great, but donations, as we've seen in global public health crises, donations don't work. They don't solve the problem. They're noble, but they don't solve the problem. And really, the governments that have the power to change the situation need to start acting in a way that shows real leadership, rather than actually trying to maintain a system that is actually holding us back from making any progress here. Okay, fair enough. Uh, I'll pass that on. (laughs) No, I I agree. And I also think it's some of the stuff that needs to be unpacked in that is also in some ways kind of smacks of white saviorism, etc. As you say, we need to have a much more nuanced structural approach to this. Although I think it's definitely triggering some good conversations. The question I had for you, Miriam, was around rather than vaccine nationalism, nationalism in general. So this week, the health secretary introduced the threat of a 10-year jail term for travellers who hide the fact that they've been in COVID hotspots. So do you think that if the pandemic continues in poorer countries after the global north has vaccinated itself, that that could ultimately lead to harder borders or or be an excuse that the government uses to enact strict border policies, stricter border policies? Yeah, depressingly, I think this pandemic was always going to be used as a means to further the agenda of the hostile environment. And I think that's what we're seeing play out just now. This pandemic has been a really horrifying time for, for example, asylum seekers in the UK. We've seen some of the conditions of the housing that they've been kept in. It's been, you know, described like prison-like. And there was a deadly incident in Glasgow where people, asylum seekers, were kept in really awful conditions, had their doors locked, had their food allowance taken away from them. 
And that was done under the guise of, you know, protecting people against the pandemic. And unfortunately, I think we're going to see that extended to border controls as well. There's been a lot of discussion in recent weeks around border controls, um, well, in the last few months, really, building up around quarantine periods. But there's a flip side to that as well, which is that it was, you know, almost an inevitability with the government that we currently have that that conversation would lead to working out ways to penalise people. And we've already seen some really concerning signs of this around specific rights for asylum seekers coming from various countries. So what we effectively have is wealthy nations that have, you know, repeatedly blocked waivers on IP rights to ensure that low and middle income countries can access and create the vaccinations that they need to keep people safe. And at the same time, now we're seeing nations like ours say that people cannot come here if they are from certain countries or those ideas are now being floated. And I think that's a really, really, really concerning direction of travel for us to go in. But sadly, I think that was almost an inevitability. Yeah, um, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I th- I just saw Dahlia Jebriel, who's a fantastic commentator, tweet earlier that Botswana, which has had zero new cases today, is on the red list. Meaning if you come from there and don't quarantine in a hotel, which costs around two grand, you can get 10 years in jail. But the US, which has had 96,460 new cases today, is not, uh, which I think is quite revealing, as you say, about the implications that all this has for the hostile environment policies. Okay, so uh, I want to wrap up. Let's talk about what needs to change. A lot of this has come through already, but I just really want to emphasize at the end. So starting with you, Tahir, what do you think, in a nutshell, uh, we could do to start approaching fixing the problems of the intellectual property system that you've laid out here so that we can make sure that access to medical supplies is shared fairly? The first thing we need to do is we need to get as many suppliers up and running as quickly as possible. Uh, whether that be in six months or 12 months, as is realistic to set up some of these manufacturing plants to make some of these vaccines, I still think that is going to get us ahead of the game compared to what current projections are. And so the governments of countries that have the power that to sway these pharmaceutical companies need to act and act quickly. I think all this delaying and sort of deflection that's going on at the World Trade Organization or what pharmaceutical companies are doing in not uh, providing technology to the WHO technology pool, all this is delaying the inevitable that we are going to be in this crisis for a lot longer, or we're going to have to close borders, as Miriam has said. And uh, that's the starting point I think we need to look for. And then going forward, we need to look at our World Trade Organization rules, because the next crisis that's going to come is going to hit this same bottleneck. And we need to figure out uh, how we're going to solve those by changing the rules when it comes to real pandemic situations like we're in now. Okay, and coming to you then, Miriam, this same question. Um, You've suggested that we should have public ownership of medical developments, among other things. So what do you mean by that? And yeah, any final gems on how we might get out of this mess? Well, I think COVID's really highlighted the imbalances of our current approach to IP. And beyond the, you know, there's an immediate need just now to safeguard safe and effective vaccines for all. That means as Tahir has mentioned, ensuring that governments that have influence act here and now. This crisis is not going away anytime soon. And the longer we delay action, the more lives are at risk. We need to look at IP waivers. Um, we need to look at a, a global patent pool. 
Um, but that entails action from governments and that entails challenging corporate power of pharmaceutical giants as well. But beyond the immediate need to tackle COVID, I think we need to reimagine our broader approach to IP as well. The IP was originally envisioned as a way to stimulate innovation by protection, ownership of knowledge of creativity. But the current approach, as we've seen and heard in this podcast, has increasingly become a driving force for the accumulation and protection of assets um, by large corporations. And in recent years, too, we've seen a real rise of intangible assets like IP, and they've become a defining feature of our current economic system and a real source of control in the economy if we look at the ways that data, brands, algorithms are increasingly valued in our economy as well. So this needs to be part of a much broader conversation around reform of IP, because we know that the current system is disproportionately benefiting corporations and really failing to equitably distribute products and services, nor importantly, does it actually maximise innovation to address the intersecting crises that we face today, whether that's COVID, whether that's the climate crisis, for example. So what we need to do is rebalance power by extending principles of democratic ownership. And this is something that we've called for at Commonwealth, ownership and control of intellectual property and research and development to shift corporate behaviour, but also to expand the public commons. So this could, for example, look like ensuring that if things like vaccines are um, developed, are in part publicly funded, then the publicly developed intellectual property is held for the public benefit. That could also look at other measures like ramping up research and development investment to address social, economic and ecological crises. But really, we need to move towards a model of public ownership of public knowledge commons approach to intellectual property that is rooted in equitable access. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like we've certainly got a lot of work to do, but that is sadly all we've got time for this week. Thanks so much, both of you, for joining me. It's been a really, really enlightening, um, if slightly disheartening conversation. Um, But that's what we specialise in here on the NEF pod. But anyway, Miriam Brett, first of all, thanks so much for joining me. If people want to find out more about your work, where can they go? What should they read? Um, Head to Commonwealth's website. We have a I'm biased, obviously. Fantastic library of work. (laughs) And thank you so much for having me on the show. Brilliant. Thanks, as always, for being with us, Miriam. And Tahir, I mean, thanks so much for joining me. A same question, if people want to find out more about you and your work, where can they go? What should they read? Thank you. Uh, www.i-mak.org. I'm also active on Twitter at Real Tahir Amin. And uh, I just wrote a recent foreign affairs piece on some of these issues that sounds brilliant is there a fake Tahir I mean on Twitter who you've had to um, oust <laughs> I don't know I, the, the, whoever was the real real Tahir I mean got that shorter handle so I had to become maybe I'm the fake one I don't know (laughs) Yeah, Uh, that is it lovely listener for today's weekly economics podcast if you've enjoyed this episode as much as I have please tell someone about it as always you can drop us a line with your comments and questions we're at Neff on Twitter the weekly economics podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith stay safe